0: All right, we're live.
1: All right, so uh, we are back. I am your co-host, Delilah.
0: And I'm your co-host, Daisy.
1: And this is actually a new segment that we are going to be titling Army Spotlight and we have a very special guest as our first guest and we are so excited um we are going to be talking with cj farley he is a harvard university graduate he has served as a host for video series such as um wsj cafe he's interviewed so many celebrities beyonce jay-z Ari- ariana grande taylor swift the whole Nine Yards. He's an NAACP NAACP Image Awardee for Outstanding Literary Work in Youth and Teens. And he is here today to talk about his upcoming novel, Zero O'Clock. So um, I'm just going to give a warm welcome to CJ so he can introduce himself.
2: Hey, thanks a lot for having me. It's an honor to be on your program. I'm really glad to talk about Zero O'Clock. It was a fun book to write a hard book to to write but uh, i'm glad it's gonna be out there soon and we can chat about it
1: yeah that's amazing we did have um a series of you know questions that we hope we can all tackle but first of all just want to say congratulations on the publication of the book we really enjoyed it and also a shout out to who did the cover of this? Um, let me see. Stacy Wakefield Fort. Uh, the cover of this book is absolutely stunning. Like, it's more stunning in person. And so thank you for offering us a copy of it because it's truly beautiful.
2: <laughs> well, thanks a lot. You know, the covers of books are always difficult for me. I spend a lot of time researching them and trying to find the right person to do it and going through a lot of cover tries before I settle on one. You know, because people always say, don't judge a book by its cover. But everybody does. And we, you see and a we, book, we you like all, you decide whether all, you're all gonna f- buy it or not course. based on the cover. So it really is important to have the right image on there because you can do all the great writing you want, you can do all the research you want, you can pour your heart and your passion and your soul into a book, and if the cover stinks, people are just gonna walk on by and they might never read it. So covers are important, so I'm glad you gave a shout out to the artist.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, it's really great, and um, I hope everyone will be able to purchase their own physical copy. So, I guess our first question is, you know, this book takes place, of course, um, during the summer of the pandemic and along the Black Lives Matter movement that was happening then. So, this had to be written after that time period, which was only a few months ago. So, like, when did you first get the idea to start writing this book?
2: You know, a lot of it was written actually during the pandemic. And here's what happened. You know, um, I was writing a book that was going to be a fantasy book. Then I decided, you know, I was kind of thinking about what Lauren Hill once said that, you know, fantasy is what people want and reality is what they need. I thought maybe I'll shelve the fantasy book for a little bit and work on something else. And I started working on another book that was kind of about, um, you know, the suburbs and, um, and middle-aged people in the suburbs, you know, which I am. And uh, and their jobs and their commutes and their, their love lives. And um, as I began writing that book, I thought the most interesting character in it was the 16-year-old daughter. And I began really sort of focusing more on her concerns and what she was listening to and what inspired her and moved her and challenged her about what was going on around her in the world and the pandemic and Black Lives Matter. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to make this an adult book. I'm going to make this a young adult book. I'm going to turn this totally inside out and just focus in on her. You know, because I love young adult books. Because back when I was in school, I remember reading books like you know Catcher in the Rye and um, and uh, To Kill a Mockingbird and um, and uh, and books like that. And um, most of them did not feature sort of multicultural characters at the heart of them. And um, and uh, and. And I wanted to read the kind of book that I wish I could have gotten to read when I was in middle school or high school or in college, but that was never on the reading list. And so I thought, let me make this about a Jamaican-American girl, 16 years old, um, facing up to a lot of the big issues of our time, but doing so as an ordinary person, living a sort of ordinary life, but called to do extraordinary things. And that seemed to be much more interesting to me than writing about another middle-aged person commuting to their work.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. hmm It's very interesting to, like, realize, like, that actually your book didn't even start off, like, with the original premise that it had, that it was originally something else. I find that really fascinating. And, you know, the fact that you touched upon, you know, the importance of diversity within the cast, that's actually one of the questions that we had wanted to ask you. Because, obviously, with the cast of Zero Clock, you know, you have Geth, you know, she's Jamaican-American, you have... Uh, Tova, she's, you know, in her words 100% Jewish, 100% Korean and then you have Diego you know, he's Cuban and he lives um, in, you know, they all live in the same area so like um, and I know I've like listened to a couple of like your previous interviews on things like um, uh, one of your other fantasy novels about um, the game one Uh, and so I know you had talked about like the importance of diversity um, because you know, a lot of the you know, literature that we get, um, it's very white-centric, you know, there's not a lot of diversity within that, and so a lot of the youth don't actually really see themselves in, you know, either reality nor fantasy, which is kind of upsetting. So I'm glad that you touched upon diversity, because that's something that a lot of people really do not think about in terms of, like, the literature that our youth is consuming.
2: Yeah, a lot of that inspiration came right from BTS. Because I think there are people who are sort of committed to diversity, um, I mean, here they are um, in a, a Korean market, and yet they managed to design the kind of music and the kind of aesthetic that has you know, global appeal. Um, and you, you see their videos, that, um, um, uh, and, you, um, and you see the, uh, the, the, their there, um, like, Permission to Dance, a very diverse cast of people in that video. Um, you see the people that they hook up with to um, record songs with, you know, everyone from Megan The Stallion, um, uh, to Juice World, you know, they're very open about who they're going to collaborate with and, um, and I, I take inspiration from them because if they can you know, cross boundaries of culture and race and language and still have this broad appeal, I mean, I, I, I can certainly try to do the same kind of thing in literature, so um, they really were inspirational for me as a writer, seeing that they could have this big worldwide appeal um, and, uh, and do songs that are mostly in Korean and yet still reach a broader audience and, um, so I figured I could write about these characters that may seemingly have limited appeal, but I think that everybody can see themselves in, in them. And I recently read some comments from, um, RM that I thought were really quite striking, because it's something that all the great artists do. We talked about the fact that he doesn't see, um, uh, he doesn't see, I'm paraphrasing here, he doesn't see BTS is ever, you know, recording like an all English language album, or starting to release all their songs in English, because... You know, they're always going to drop a few English language songs here and there, and of course, they always have English phrases in their songs. But it's about doing it as um, a K pop band, doing it as a Korean language centered band. And that's so cool and so uncompromising. And that's the way that Bob Marley went about his music. He wasn't going to sing anything that wasn't in Jamaican patois. That's what he was about. He was going to rap the island. That's the way gr- um, great artists go about their work. Um, they, they, they have their culture they have their language they want to speak, they have the goals they want to accomplish, and they don't let the, um, the, the world pull them away from that. They pull the world towards what they want to do. And so I think RM is really kind of inspirational to me as a writer.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. I, I just love that BTS is able to communicate with so many people, not just from different places in the world, but of different age groups. Uh, you know, young, older, middle-aged, they can really just connect with anyone. And so I'm really curious, like when did you first discover BTS? Like how did that journey of like finding out who they really are went? Because you clearly know a lot about them. It's clear in Geff's character and how much BTS is core to her. So I'm really curious just like how you first got into BTS yourself.
2: Well, first of all, I don't really know that much about BTS. I think I can create the illusion that I do because that's what writers (laughs) do. You know, you have a lot of research, you listen to a lot of stuff, you talk to people. And then you create a character that seems to know much more than you do. Then five minutes after you finish writing it, you forget the whole thing. It happens to me. Every book that I do, I wrote a book about piracy. I used to know all the names of the different sails on boats. Now I don't know anything about them. I wrote a book on Bob Marley. I still know a fair amount about Bob Marley, but a lot of the intimate details, I kind of forgot as soon as I finished the book. Um, So that happens. So uh, pretty much everyone that listens to your show probably knows more about BTS than I do. Um, but, but that said, you know, I got into it because, um, you know, I was a music critic for Time Magazine, you know, I interviewed a lot of people, you know, Kanye West, you know, Taylor Swift, Adele, Outkast, you know, Lauryn Hill, um, Radiohead, Ariana Grande, there's people the like, people that, that I found interesting, and, um, and especially bands. There's something interesting about bands and the culture that bands create around themselves. You know, I remember going on tour with Radiohead and getting to see them, them interact with their fans, you know, um. I remember um, interviewing Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band and seeing the way their fans are devoted to them. Um, I hung out with members of the Grateful Dead and saw the way in which people would, would hang around them and come to tape at concerts. and So all of that kind of stuff really made me really interested in the way people react to bands, you know, going to see Nirvana Unplugged. And BTS has taken a lot of that to another kind of level because uh, I think with, with ARMY, the devotion they have to not only see BTS in concert, but also to sort of uh, do what they can on a private level to ensure success. I mean, uh, uh, most artists out there wish they had fans that were that d- devoted to what they do. You can't really call them fans because they're beyond fans. It's, it's a kind of devotion that goes beyond what almost every other pop star has out there. So um, I had some relatives that invited me to go see um, uh, 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 XO one concert and for some crazy reason I didn't go. I don't know what was going on through my head. Maybe I was thinking, oh, maybe they're not as cool as Radiohead. And then someone else, um, another friend of my family invited, invited us to go see BTS a couple years ago. And we didn't go. It was so stupid and crazy. We didn't go. I don't know what I was thinking about. Again, maybe I was still up in my um, s- a snooty um, uh, um, music critic head that I couldn't get over like going to see this boy band in concert. And um, my daughter, you know, uh, began listening to more and more K-pop, and I began to listen to what she's listening to because both my daughter and my son have very good taste in music, and I began to think, oh my gosh, there's a whole layer of stuff going on with this band that I didn't quite get. Um, And it really took seeing my daughter listening to them, and then checking out their lyrics, and seeing some of their videos, and seeing the video for Spring Day, and seeing all the references to the ones who walk away from Amalus, and realizing, oh my gosh, there's some real depth here, and and the fans are onto something, and why in the world did I turn down those tickets and now it's too late. <laughs> so um uh, that's kind of my path to finding out there was much more going on with the band that I knew about. Um, and, uh, and 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 now now they, you know they're one of my favorite groups. I listen to them all the time.
1: Well, we that's just such want. Yeah, we just like respect you so much because you know when it comes to boy bands, a lot of journalists and music critics, as we see, Uh, will completely dismiss BTS just because they have female fans, a female audience, just because they are quote-unquote boy band and more specifically a K-pop band. And, like, they're just so... Every time an article comes out written about them, ARMY just, like, holds their breath and is like, is this going to be garbage or is it just going to be okay? Like, we just got that trash billboard article (laughs) like yesterday. So, um, it's just really nice to see someone kind of, like, reflect and be like, oh, maybe the fans are onto something and that this isn't just some crazy fangirl phenomenon.
2: Well, that's the way most music starts out. People make fun of it, and then suddenly it becomes everybody's life. You think of Beatlemania. I mean, they were written (laughs) off as just guys with mop tops and who are these guys, and suddenly people are, are like, this is really kind of deep stuff and we have to respect that. You think of rap. I remember back when I was in junior high school, uh, on people saying, oh, rap is just talking, this isn't real music, and of course now it dominates the cultural you know, landscape. You think of Taylor Swift. I remember the first time I did an interview with her, she was a teenager, and people, um, I can't believe it was the Street Journal then or Time, maybe the Street Journal, but when I was there, other people were coming up to me like, why are you interviewing this teenage artist? Why, why should we be taking this seriously? And I'm like, no, she's a great songwriter. I think that she's um, a great performer. I think she's, she's going to get even better and better as she matures. And of course she did, and now she's a major American artist. Um, so uh, things that people casually dismiss are often things that are the most important things about the culture. The same thing about Bob Marley. Bob Marley was dismissed early on. Who's this Rasta guy? What's, his, what's the deal with his weird hair? Um, why can't he speak English in his songs? People just missed him. Now he's a symbol of Jamaica. And it's seen the same thing with BTS. They become a symbol of their home country as well, and a global symbol, I think, of acceptance, of, 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 of great music, um, and of so many other positive cultural things. And so you can't listen to the critics. You have to listen to your own feelings about whether music is good or bad.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, when it comes to things like that, obviously there are so many great acts that start off with, like, receiving so much skepticism and I know in like Zero Clock um, even Geth faces you know skepticism from you know her friends uh, you know from her stepbrother you know there are a lot of people who just don't understand like what BTS is about and so I'm wondering like did you ever like when you started getting into BTS you know through your kids like did you ever receive like any of that skepticism yourself cause you know especially for like older fans like when you start getting into you know a group like BTS you know sometimes like their peers their coworkers, you know just start looking at them different is that something that ever
2: happened to you? Yeah, definitely. Right in my own house. I mean, uh, uh, my son, who has terrific taste in music, he's always um, ahead of the curve. Where there is rappers that he's into, um, you know, like Juice World. I mean, he listened to Juice World before Juice World had really sort of broken out big. Um, and he's not into into K-pop. He's not into BTS. And when he hears um, uh, us playing playing BTS, uh, he's he's not down with that. He's not. He doesn't think that's that's good music at all and um, he'll walk away from the TV if we're watching a, a K-pop video or watching a BTS video. So that happens all the time, but, you know, again, you, um, uh, not everyone gets it, not everyone will be into the music, and, and, and that's okay. Um, and I think there, um, it's, it's um, part of, the, part of the, the, the attraction to BTS sometimes is the fact that um, it's music that everybody doesn't get. There's a sense of community that it's kind of us against them, that we're into this, you don't get it, you're welcome to join us if you want, but we're gonna keep enjoying what we do. And um, and this may sound like a jump, but I really think it's true. Uh, I think the kind of community that BTS helps form, um, I think that helps um, you know uh, address some of the problems we're all going through um, as as a world right now. I mean, so many problems we're dealing with, are, are um, the solution is community. I mean, global warming, you can't change that unless everybody pitches in and realizes we're all part of one global community and if you don't all act together in concert without anyone coming out of it, it's not going to change. The pan, uh, um, uh, the pandemic, you know, we're finding that's a matter of community too. We've all got to get vaccinated and get masked and um, social distance and do it together. We're not going to change. And what's one of the best examples of community we have right now? I mean, it's really the BTS army. I mean, uh, they work together um, and and they try to solve problems together. Whether it's you know getting um, uh, a song up on the charts or whether and this is what really struck me about BTS, um, how many K-pop fans, BTS fans, really help support Black Lives Matter. You know I didn't see Kanye West fans coming out to support Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, I didn't see a lot of um, other um, acts doing that. So I was really struck and pleased and um, but not surprised to see this very community-based band, BTS, that critics were not always taken seriously, being able to be one of the few acts in the world that stepped forward and said, you know, we're going to support this global problem. We're going to tweet out our support for Black Lives Matter. At a time when um, Trump was still president, when there was a lot of debate about some of these issues, um, people were really at each other's throats. This band, which didn't really have a dog in the fight because they were all the way in. um, in Korea, they still wanted to say something about what was happening in the streets of America because they realized their fans, um, their community, was bigger than just the borders of their own country.
1: Yeah, that that's really powerful. Um, the fact that BTS, I think, understands that they are a global presence and that you know they're not just a boy band from South Korea, but like they are representatives of South Korea as a whole now, and so whatever they do is going to reflect. Um, going to reflect on the entire country and that's a lot of pressure to have and so i think it was just crazy last summer um when it was just revealed that bts donated a million dollars and then you know daisy was the one who got the hashtag match a million going and then suddenly we matched the donation and it's and it's like yeah bts has created this community but it's kind of still insane when you see that community actually come together and like do something like this and it's like oh my god what if we applied this to so many other things like imagine what the world would be like
2: yeah i think that's exactly right and i think it will be applied to other things that we, we, we're seeing it happen um and so uh, you know i think that the critics can you know keep criticizing and I think that bts fans will keep coming together the bts will keep on succeeding and um i i just wonder um, what higher levels the band can, can ascend to when they get to start touring again. Because they're doing all this and they're not really able to leave you know, South Korea or the Asian market. Uh, once they're able to sort of tour again and come here and do these giant stadium tours, I just wonder how much higher the craziness will get. Are we gonna get Beatlemania type crazy um, levels outside these concerts? Is there a level beyond that we just don't know about? Um, I'm just fascinated to see how that all plays out.
0: Oh, 100%. I know that like everyone is just waiting for BTS to come back on tour, you know, especially since, you know, the recent like, you know, cancellation of the Map of the Soul Seven. I mean, it was kind of postponed, but like the official cancellation kind of hurt everybody, I know. Because like for me, like I had tickets to like the FedEx Fields concert that they were going to do in DC. So I was like excited and then, you know, seeing them cancel out, I was like, it was such a shame because, you know, they had so much plan for that concert and it was already like a level above what they were doing before. So like to think about like how big the production was going to be, how many places that they were going to visit. I just know that like when it comes back on, especially since people haven't like seen BTS face to face in like over a year, it's just going to be insane. So we're really looking forward to that.
2: Yeah, because you know, as I said before, you know, BTS is about community and I think that uh, and music is about community. And nothing's more powerful than bringing a community together and actually having a live concert. Now, I remember just when um, when uh, alternative rock was really hot, and I'd go to like Lollapalooza and see you know bands like you know Pearl Jam or Smashing Pumpkins do their thing. Yeah, that's the time people really kind of gel eyes around a band and really realize this is the band that I that I really love, and it says something about me. Um, when you're actually face to face with other fans that love them, and you're in the crowd and you're yelling, um, it's one thing to have that kind of experience watching a music video or watching, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, a talk show clip. It's it's a whole different thing when you're actually finally out there with other people that love the same band and you're cheering and you're yelling and you're screaming and you're buying the concert t-shirt. Um, and once we get back to that that again, I just think things will probably be kicked up to another level. I hope it happens soon, um, but uh, it'll be really fascinating to see what happens then.
1: Yeah, uh, going back to... Um your novel, Zero O'Clock, we found it really fascinating that it was written, the chapters are like diary entries, and so we were wondering, like, what was the thought process behind that stylistic choice?
2: Yeah, um, you know, when I write books, I tend to get thoroughly immersed in the voice. Like, I once wrote a book called Kingston by Starlight that takes place in the 18th century. It's about the real-life story of Anne Bonny, who was a female pirate who dressed as a man and actually helped terrorize the West Indies in the 18th century it was put on trial. Um, it was a big sensational trial at the time. It was kind of like the, the O.J. Simpson case of its time, but only with, um, with um, gender and piracy instead of, um, instead of race and football. Um, and so I got thoroughly immersed in that voice. I got so immersed, I remember I, I almost felt like, I was one time I was visiting Jamaica on a research trip, and I almost felt like Anne Bonny was talking in my head and channeling her voice and I was able to sort of write that. And the same thing with this book here. You know, I got thoroughly immersed in the kinds of things this character was into, and I just tried to channel that. In the end, I think when you're writing a book that's a first-person book, um, you can't just feel like you're, you're typing. You can't just feel like um, you're writing and composing. It has to feel like you're channeling someone else's voice. You've grown that voice up inside you, and it's talking, and you're just kind of taking dictation. Um, so that's the way it worked for this book And until I was completely done with it Then the voice just kind of shut off And it's kind of weird to have it leave you It's almost like you're no longer being haunted By this ghost, this ghost that seemed to love BTS a lot um, And that's what happened here for Zero Clock The voice came to me um, I, started, I started taking dictation um, The book ended The voice left And um, now I look back on some things I'm like, why in the world did I write that? Um, or where, where was that coming from? But it wasn't really me. It was this voice that was sort of channeling to write this book. Uh, I'm about as far from a 16-year-old girl as you can get, obviously. Um, but uh, that's the voice that came to me to write this book.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, definitely when it comes to, especially since you were capturing kind of like uh, a moment in life for her, I think that it was a really great choice that you did to have it like Diary Entries because, you know, there's just so much, like, You can get from like, you know, traditional third person that I feel like just wouldn't resonate as much if it were written that way. So, you know, to be able to get into her thought process, how she felt about things, you know, as if like you were in her head almost, I feel like that was like a really good choice that you made. And, um, you know, another uh, thing that we wanted to know is that, um, you know, when we were reading your author statement that came with the book, you know, I noticed that there were a lot of, like, parallels between, like, some of the events of the book and, like, your real-life experiences. So when you were writing this book, like, was it, like, cathartic for you in any way? Or, like, is it a good way to, like, have an outlet for your emotions?
2: It, It was a good outlet to sort of turn to every day. Because you know we we're all uh, we were all living through this pandemic, but um, New Rochelle, New York, which is my hometown, at one point was the epicenter of the pandemic. And I remember, you know, watching my house and watching 60 Minutes, and on it I realized, oh my gosh, that's the house around the corner from me that they're um, that they've got cameras outside because they want to talk to someone inside who's in, who's um, reportedly infected with, with COVID. And I thought, oh my gosh, we really are in the center here. And then it we became, we became a containment zone. And, and then, of course, the, the whole country ended up um, being part of this, this epidemic. But uh, New Rochelle, sad to say, kind of led the way. Um, so uh, being in the center of the storm for a little bit made me think, um, uh, uh, you know, I do ha- want to capture this. And, um, you know, I think a lot of novels are written like five, ten years after events take place, maybe even longer one reason why I wanted to write it right when I was in the the, the, um, the middle of the storm is because you lose things. You know, some ever have a dream that makes so much sense when you have it, and when you wake up, uh, uh, you quickly forget it, and it's almost as if that dream um, uh, um, never happened, and you lose the details of it? The same thing is true, I think, of really big, important events. Sometimes when you live through them, it all makes sense. It's crazy. It's a rush of emotions and, and danger and crazy stuff happening. Then a year later you're like, did that really happen? What was that about? And unless you take really careful notes, unless you write it down, unless you try to capture what's happening, um, it's lost forever. Now, I think that future writers that try to piece together what we all went through over the last year won't be able to do so. It won't make sense from afar. It only made sense when you were in it. And so I wanted to capture it while it was happening. So we would always have it. We would always have a memory of uh, what was going on, and part of the inspiration again comes from from BTS i mean um that song zero o 'clock to a certain extent kind of captures that the way um you know I think the songs about the fact that you know every day you have this chance to 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 repeat and to and to start again and to um, and to do something I have a chance at something positive happening um, uh, but there 's also that sense of of you know that kind of blurs day sense of. One day blurring into another, and not and a time dislocation, not knowing uh, where you are, um, and uh, and so this book is an attempt to try to you know uh, nail it all down to say yes, there's a chance of always changing, but also um, there's a chance of losing uh, the sense of what you went through, losing the sense of of um, of these experiences, and this is going to capture it forever in this book form.
1: Yeah, it was really interesting, also seeing um, get. Uh, go through changes in how her OCD was kind of changing throughout the book and how her anxiety was changing as the pandemic progressed. And since OCD was a very integral part of her character, I'm curious, like, what was the inspiration of Geth having OCD?
2: Yeah, I've been talking about um, uh, some of the emotional and mental health challenges we all face is very important. I see so many kids and parents who are wrestling with mental health issues and some of them are wise enough and brave enough to get help from mental health professionals. Others, unfortunately, maybe have families or parents that don't think that they want to show any kind of weakness and don't want to reach out for help. And unfortunately, kids and families suffer. So I want to normalize things that some some things that people are not fairly seeing as not normal. When you do have mental health challenges, it's a normal thing to have. It's like having a cold. It's like having, you know, stubbing your toe. Um, uh, it's like any other health problem. You should not even call it mental health problems. You just call it health problems that you need to deal with. And so um, I wanted to make sure this character was someone who was facing those kind of challenges to sort of show this is an ordinary thing. People go through these things. Yes, it can be frightening. Yes, it can be super serious, but yes, you can also overcome it, and um, it can um, lead you on the path to bigger and better things. Um, and, and facing down those challenges, you can become a, a richer, more nuanced person. So that's part of the reason why, you know, Geth does have OCD, and part of the reason why you see her going through those things. I also want to make the, the, the character in the book, you know, someone who does... Um, who goes uh, goes through you know ordinary challenges and overcomes them you know uh, uh, this 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 is a young woman who um you know she has a period in, in, in the book she um she uh you know has a crush on somebody in, in, in school um she she's having problems with her friend with the choice of colleges because the the friend one friend um, it's unclear whether she wants to go there or not uh, these are some of the challenges that people go through that some outsiders might see are as um, as uh, as boring or they might see it as, um, as, as not serious but when you're living in a situation it's the world to you. It's really important. You're trying to deal with these things. You're trying to get them over, over, over with or they're just part of your life and I wanted to make sure that that was all in the book
0: really appreciate you saying that, especially, you know, the fact that, you know, we need to normalize more discussions on, you know, mental health, you know, especially because, you know, Delilah and I, were both, you were both psychology majors in university, so we understand the importance of these kinds of things. And, you know, it also what you said, you know, really resonates with me because like it's very similar to what uh, Suga has said, you know, before about mental health and how he even used like the phrase like we should talk about it as if it's like the common cold or something, you know, you know, just to be able to have those easy conversations about mental health is what's going to help destigmatize it and Uh, The fact that, you know, uh, a character in the book, you know, has mental health, it doesn't necessarily mean like they're, you know, completely different, they're like a different type of human being from anyone else, you know, I feel like it was really important to have that representation, um, especially for the youth who, you know, at that age, you know, a lot of them are going through a lot of mental health struggles, so I think that's really important. And, you know, also to include the ordinary struggles, because Uh, You know, there's something I feel like is very underappreciated about things like slice of life You know, a lot of people will call that boring But I feel like there's a lot of charm in just the mundane, you know Going to the grocery store or just sitting in bed, you know, doing something on your laptop I feel like a lot of people really don't appreciate those little moments in life Which, you know, is something that you show a lot in zero o'clock And I think that it's definitely a good perspective to have
2: and one thing I can say is, you know, although you're right, this is, um, much of this book is a slice of life kind of book, you know, I think that uh, BTS fans will see a lot of references to their songs um, uh, mm-hmm. built into the book. They'll see a lot of images that, um, that hark back to things that are in BTS songs, um, things that people say in the book or that Geth thinks are things that are inspired by things that um, uh, people may have heard members of bts say in interviews um so it's it's slice of life but it's also one that i think is informed by sort of the literary imagination where it does have a meaning um this is life that's that, that has a meaning to it and that grows as you sort of follow the plot of book uh, plot of the book to the end
1: yeah i really appreciate i don't know just taking the time to highlight you know the people she interacts with at the grocery store that the barbershop owner and like just the, like it's not exactly you know necessary to the plot to just have this conversation in the shop that maybe doesn't really add anything to the core plot of like the pandemic and Black Lives Matter but it's still it gives so much character and makes the novel feel lived in and makes it feel like oh I have been to New Rochelle so I I don't know, I really just loved the moments of just being able to breathe, especially since the novel does, you know, tackle some, you know, deeper issues. So it's just nice to have those moments of, you know, quote-unquote slice of life.
2: Yeah, well, thanks for saying that. You know, um, and uh, as you said before, and we talked we talked a lot about community. That's one reason why we do see her community. Um, uh, the book, a lot of the book is in her head, but... Uh, um, through the plot of the book we see her meeting um, uh, uh, the, her, the uh, people at the barber shop the people at her grocery store um, uh, the, the woman who works at the beauty shop that she goes to um, uh, uh, guy, guys at the pizza shop the guy at the, um, uh, at the, at the Jamaican food restaurant um, and we begin to see all these communal ties that she has and we see them challenged we see some of them fray and fall apart and we see them all come to a moment of crisis at the end. And in that, I think it rep- represents the, the kind of journey we've all gone through over the last year where we've seen some of the bonds of community challenged again and again. And some of them have popped, some of them have broken, others have held strong and allowed us to go forward. And it also, um, some of these bonds sort of pull Geth out of her own head. And she realizes by the end, she has to take a stand. She has to do something. Positive in a community, um, and, 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 in order to sort of overcome some of the challenges that everybody's facing, that you can't just live a life completely isolated and alone, um, or the world kind of falls apart. So, there is a point to all the seeming pointlessness of some of her everyday interactions that are depicted in the book. And I think it does, again, speak to the larger issue of community that is represented by BTS, her favorite band. Um, this book is essentially about that. This community challenged, this person within the community realizing that she has to um, meet the challenge by embracing the community and doing something more than she's done as an isolated individual.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree with that. When it comes to community, you know, there's so many good things that come out of it. Um, and especially that showed in the book, you know, the way that she communicates with, you know, all these different shop owners, her friends, her family. And, you know, you know, would you say that, like, that's definitely like a reflection of, like, the importance of community that you have in real life? Like, you know, how important do you think it is to maintain relationships, especially, like, within the context of, like, this pandemic, given that, like, we're all separated. It's very hard to, you know, meet people the way that we use Used to like how important is it for you to just maintain relationships?
2: Yeah, it definitely is is important. I think and I think that this whole pandemic forced everybody to take stock of well, what relationships is it worth maintaining? Um, which relationships to, who do we want in our bubble and who do we not want in our bubble? Um, and uh, um, and should there be a bubble at all? Um, all those questions are things that we were raised in this period, and they're really existential questions, and they're they're part of what goes on in this book. And something you mentioned before I think it's worth talking about again is that, that um that was a really important sort of theme in this book is um one of the most frustrating things people face is when your um your 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 personal tastes are challenged. When there's something that you just love, whether it's a movie or it's a book or it's a work of art or a person, and someone says, you're wrong. That sucks um, that's really damaging. It really, it really, um, because it not only hurts you as a person, but it also sort of questions the validity of, of your choices and your taste. And I've seen that happen. As we talked about before, the, again and again, people who are BTS fans, where someone goes, like, "Oh, they suck. They're not a good band. You know, why don't you listen to this other thing? Why don't you listen to Maroon Five, some other crazy band?" And um, and uh, and it, it, it questions whether you want to maintain your bonds with that person and have them in your in your bubble or not. And that's something that Geth faces again and again, with sort of questioning her taste in music, and thus questioning, you know, I think her taste as a person, and um, and some of those those um, those challenges she overcomes. I mean, um, with her her stepbrother, um, who first confronts her about her taste, and it's really a a, a, a serious moment for her. But they end up um, you know forming sort of an uneasy friendship with her stepfather, who has a whole different bunch of tastes in alternative rock and, and, and um, music that he thinks is cool and she gradually sort of works some of his music into her playlist and they kind of, um, by the end, are seeing more eye-to-eye eye. and yet throughout this all, the whole thing uh, there's one constant on her playlist and that seems to be BTS I mean, it shows up on basically every playlist she has um, so she maintains that sort of core value throughout she successfully defends and and, and stands up for something she really believes in in a group that she it's really centered to, to her existence.
1: Yeah, you mentioned, um, you know, them having music playlists, and we actually really love that detail because throughout the novel it seems that the characters communicated with each other by sending music playlists, especially after there was like an argument or, you know, it just something ended on an awkward note and so they would send a music playlist and that would convey how they're feeling. and. You know it it we just really liked seeing how those music playlists evolved throughout the novel novel so uh we actually had a question so if you were to make a a pandemic playlist and pick your favorite bts songs for that like which songs um by bts do you think like really capture the pandemic
2: well i have a playlist right here um let me call it up um so this is the playlist. Uh, some of these songs came out post-pandemic. These are ones I listened to throughout throughout the pandemic. Um, so, uh, uh, zero, 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 00000 clock kicks off with that, of course, the name of the book. Spring Day, love that song, love that video. I think it's very, very deep. I think it's one of their classic tracks. Life Goes On, um, which actually came out after the period of my book um, ends, so I didn't include it in any playlist, but it's obviously a terrific song about the pandemic euphoria i've always loved that song um trivia love um one of my favorite songs dachi chitawa um uh uh, the 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 solo song um uh um all night um bts juice world one of the one of the best collaborations Agreed. Uh,
0: agree telepathy
2: (laughs) telepathy a great song um and I'm sorry for fans out there that think this is too pop, but I, I love Boy With Love I think it's a great song um, with Halsey um, uh, and I'll finish it off with, uh, with, with Fake Love um, which I think is a, another terrific BTS song so um, that's what I put on my playlist and I had on my playlist to listen to throughout the pandemic and those are some of my favorite tracks by them
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a great list of songs. Um, It has a combination of, you know, pandemic songs like Telepathy and Life Goes On and Spring Day that kind of are more mellow or, you know, not as happy and upbeat. But then you also have Boy With Love and Euphoria that kind of, you know, makes you feel a little bit lighter and happy. So, like, I think your playlist is perfect.
2: Yeah, yeah it's, it's a perfect balance.:
1: you
2: know I nearly put on you know I, I, I might also consider putting on "Fly to My Room," which is a great song, um, but I want to limit it a little bit. and um, uh, I love that song eight um, with IU that Sugar does yes. with her I think that's a, that's a terrific song, um, kind of a deeper cut, I guess, if you're, if you're going beyond just uh, uh, stuff on BTS's albums, but I'll, I'll, I'd probably might add those on as, t- as well.
0: Ooh, you know, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, what would be a cool idea is if maybe like after this um, podcast episode is posted, we could share the playlist with our listeners so they could listen to the pandemic plays that you're listening to. That's
2: great. I can do that. I can I can share it? I I, I I listen to Apple Music, so I'll share that.
1: Yeah, perfect. That, that's great. I think people would really like that. Um, another question in regards to one of the main characters that isn't Geth. Um, I really liked Diego's character because you know he's this quarterback he's this you know football player but he's also an avid musical theater fan um and so the contrast I think is just like really interesting and adds a lot of depth and so there were a lot of like musical theater references and a lot of famous productions so did you have to research a lot about musical theater to portray um, Diego and Geff's passion for that, or were you kind of like already knew a bit about musical theater before that?
2: Well, I've always been a big musical f- theater fan myself, you know, and I've done a lot of uh, reporting and editing of musical theater stories. I've interviewed Lin Manuel Miranda for the for the Wall Street Journal. You can Google my interview. I, um, it was a podcast I did with him uh, back when um, when uh, uh, when um, uh, he just got nominated for a bunch of Tonys for Hamilton. Um, so uh, it's something that I have a lot of uh, 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 connection to as a journalist. Um, but uh, you know, for this character in particular, you know, I, I, I didn't want to have cookie-cutter characters. I didn't want to have a character that was just this or just that, because that's not the way that the, the, the um, kids and teens that I know, that's not their lies. They have a lot of contradictions. They do different things. Uh, they may be in the football, they may be in the musical theater too. So I want to make sure that this character kind of reflected that. And this friend group um, is, is often talking about uh, musical theater and talking about shows like Six and, and, um, and other Broadway shows. So it's just sort of um, uh, a, a quirky, interesting characteristic of this particular group of friends and this particular character
1: yeah it's really it's really nice i think to portray like teenagers as multifaceted because at the high school i went to you know i was part of the drama club and i did the pit for our theater musical theater productions and a lot of the cast members for the musicals were also on sports teams like the whole jock versus nerd versus goth, like those school archetypes like they don't actually exist at least in today's society so I think it was really important to like show you know teenagers as being multifaceted.
2: Well, Well the other, the other thing there is um, the, uh, people that regularly go to shows on Broadway as I do understand the kind of deep connection you can have for musical theater because it's live, because people aren't always paid that well, because it can be very emotional hearing those songs sung in person because it's different every single night um, and it's a very passionate crowd that loves musical theater and that passion to me kind of reflected um, uh, the passion that Geth has for BTS so Diego has his passion for musical theater it's real it's visceral it's ongoing there's a lot to discuss in it there's infinite depths to, 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 um, to explore same thing with BTS. I mean, it's a it's a very real, visceral kind of love people have for that band, and so I wanted to sort of have them have those kind of equal passions. Even as he kind of makes fun of her particular passion, um, he shares in a kind of quirky, interesting um, uh, passion project of his own, and that's musical theater.
0: Yeah, I definitely think that there are a lot of you know similarities between like you know acts like people in like musical theater and like BTS, because you know, both those live performances, you know, the connection that you feel during those live performances is just something unlike anything, you know, you've ever experienced before, especially when you really resonate with the lyrics or you resonate with like the performance of the actors and actresses, so I think it's like really cool to see those parallels especially with, you know, for songs like Boy With Love you know, they made a lot of theater references in the music videos, you know the things like Singing in the Rain, there were like a lot of different, I know the set was like based Basically, a theater itself so um, it's really nice to see those parallels um, especially reflected in your novel.
2: Yeah I, I hope that you know that they make a lot of jukebox musicals you know there, were, the, there was the Alanis Morissette one that recently came out Jagged a Little Pill and you know, there have been others maybe 10 20 years from now we'll see a BTS musical and some someone smart will decide to take that to Broadway I think it would fit right in um, on Broadway with a with a good smart book but yeah, there is something, you know, because I remember back in the day um, when I was covering this for, for, um, for, for time, I remember going getting to see um, Rent um, at the New York Theatre Workshop before it went to Broadway. It was a really small stage and I couldn't believe the power and the energy of seeing a great show, um, you know, up close and hearing a performance. It goes beyond seeing a movie, or even seeing it in a big theater later on Broadway, and um, and it, it makes it makes a connection, in the same way that a great you know band that you're into makes that kind of connection that's hard to ever sever, and it, it, it and it creates community among the people that that, that see these things and follow them. So that, that's one reason why he's into he's into um, Broadway, and Geth has her thing that she's into as well
1: definitely for sure yeah um I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about like New Rochelle and stuff because it is your hometown and it is you know a big inspiration for the book as well and so there were a lot of several businesses in the beginning of the book that you know Geth was Geth and her friends would visit often but of course they would shut down because of the pandemic so are those businesses based off like real, real ones, and are there any favorite businesses that you had to see get shut down in New Rochelle?
2: Yeah, there were a lot of businesses that I saw were closed temporarily. A lot of them have bounced back. Um, nothing in the book is based specifically on any kind of real place, so there are other real places in New Rochelle that maybe are like some of the places I described in the book. And I'm sure people who live in New Rochelle might see themselves uh, or see places they sort of recognize in the book as being like the places I described in the book, and one reason why I wanted to root the book so much in um, in a particular town is because I think that's what a lot of a lot of great art does. You think of like you know James Joyce you know, rooting his, some of his work in Dublin. You think of you know Bob Marley you know um, being unapologetically from Trenchtown and writing about um, that part, particular part of of Kingston, and you think of BTS you know. Uh, uh, um, being based in Seoul, and um, and rooting their music in, in that culture and that community. There's a power that comes from, and a universality that comes from being very specific and un- unapologetic about your local backgrounds. I think people think you have to be from New York or Los Angeles or someplace big and then write about those places. A lot of those places have been much covered and much documented and a lot of people from there it's often much more interesting to find some small place that you're from, that you have deep ties to, uh, that maybe people don't know the ins and outs of, and then find universal qualities about those places to tell your stories. And uh, those kinds of stories, I think, are fascinating for people. They want to follow them. And, um, and that's one reason why I set this in, in New Rochelle, you know, where I live, and sort of tried to find sort of um, universal things there. Rather than instead sort of moving to New York or Boston or something that's bigger,
0: right? I definitely feel like you know putting that you know personal element into the book really helped, especially because like during this pandemic, like you know New Rochelle, I'm sure because of the pandemic you couldn't really go anywhere. That's pretty much like for the past year or so, like all you could really know, um, you know, you really couldn't go past that because you know lockdown prevented people from traveling anywhere and. If this, I feel like if you know you were to make it about like a completely different city, you know, during the pandemic, I feel like it would be hard to capture that sort of snapshot esque uh, narration that you were doing of oh, this is what I, this to happen, you know, this is where I'm going, this is the people that I'm with. Um, So, yeah, I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, you based it off of the place that you lived and, you know, were able to see, you know, a little bit into that city through your book because, you know, like you said, you know, places like, you know, New York City, Los Angeles, you know, Miami, Florida, people write about those places all the time. You know, I ask people from, you know, who are from other places, you know, what they know about America and like the first places that they name are those cities. So it's like to be able to go for something a little bit more uncommon, a little bit more obscure, I feel like that's definitely something that I feel like a lot of uh, literature should be doing more and more of these days.
2: Yeah, I think that um, a lot of uh, artists do do that. I mean, I'm thinking of Edwige Danticat who um, writes a lot about, you know, Haiti, where, you know, she's from. You know, a, a lot, again, a lot of great literature is rooted in a very particular time and place and um, sometimes very sort of small cities or counties, you know, William Faulkner, you know, wrote about his particular um, uh, made, made up county but, but rooted in his southern past. So um, yeah, it, I think it's something that makes literature more rich by doing that and helps document the world that we're living in and, and breaks out of just the confines of some of these bigger urban centers
1: yeah um I'm curious about um how exactly the Black Lives Matter protests were happening in New Rochelle because you know Geth and her friends in the novel after they see you know the murder of George Floyd and that's making headlines they decide to also um get involved with the movement and so I'm just curious like how was it how was it actually in real time in New Rochelle, like, what was the environment like? Like, what were people out in the streets? Like, I'm really curious because, you know, it's a novel, it's fiction, but I wonder how, what was happening for you personally.
2: Well, you know, my daughter was a teenager. She's regularly going to, like, all sorts of protests, not just Black Lives Matter protests, but, you know, protests for women's rights and she's, she has a couple, you know, radical friends and they're they're out doing marches and holding signs and so I sort of took my cue from her and inside this character would be on that same kind of path. Um, and it's funny, the the, the Black Lives Matter protest, one of the last ones that I went to with my, my daughter, um, was mostly white in Westchester. I forget where we went to. We went, we went to the one Black Lives Matter protest um, in, in Westchester, and it was um, mostly, um, mostly um, white people in Westchester going to, which I thought was um, uh, actually really cool because it showed that um, people had concerns that went beyond their own private concerns, that they too wanted to support this this idea that um, that other people' other people's lives mattered and not just their own. So I actually found it very reassuring. Um, and I, I remember also during the pandemic going to a protest at the White House, and this time I didn't take my daughter with me because it, it was the pandemic and um, it was probably pretty dangerous being out, but I just felt like I had to be part of the um, mob in front of the White House yelling about stuff and saying that, you know, Trump had to leave. And um, I tried to sort of communicate the same kind of energy that I picked up being in that crowd outside the gates of the White House and put it in the book. I mean, uh, I don't think, I don't know if it changed anything, you know, just one guy out of, you know, hundreds of people outside that that, that day, but um, that energy and and seeing people out there during the pandemic and uh, still trying to speak up for what they believe, you know, all masked, but uh, still trying to, realize that you can't sit in your sit on your hands in your house anymore, you've got to be out there doing something, um, I felt the character would also reflect that same kind of energy and belief.
0: Yeah, I definitely really, you know, enjoy the fact that, you know, a lot of youth especially are really getting into these movements and, you know, to see them get energized from it, you know, the same way that your daughter is, I feel, it's just really inspiring to see because it shows that, you know, people of, like, all different walks of life are just really starting to um, get interested in campaigning for, you know, the right for everybody to just live peacefully, you know, to stand up against racism. I really just enjoyed seeing that because you know, I saw a lot of the pandemic as well. Uh, sorry, not the pandemic. The protests as well. Um, both actually in Pennsylvania and in around D.C. Because at the time of like um, the murder of George Floyd, I was actually in Pennsylvania in my sister's apartment. So we were seeing like a lot of different protests around Philadelphia and stuff like that. And then, you know, when I'd come back home and, you know, there was the protest around D.C., I was seeing that as well. So to see so many people um, go out of their way to protest, I feel was really just amazing for me to see, you know, especially because, you know, I am also black. And to see, you know, people of like all different races being there present and, you know, protesting, that was just incredible.
1: And and it's still it's still happening, too, because I live so, like, where I live, there's literally a police district station, like, right here. And just a few weeks ago, there was a BLM small protest. Maybe 10, 12 people protesting outside of it. And so, like, it's it's not something I feel like that was just a one-time thing in the summer and then people moved on. Like, people are still actively fighting for it.
2: You're exactly right. And this can't be a one-time thing. That's one reason I wrote this book, um, Zero Clock, is the fact that I wanted to sort of have a model for a kind of cultural awakening, a political awakening with this young girl. That she's in her own head, she gradually realizes the, her ties to the community, and she speaks out on issues that concern her. And um, you know, one thing you may notice in the book is, is she's a, she was a member of the, she was vice president of the Climate Change Club.
1: Right, right. Because I think
2: that's another great issue that's facing us right now and the same lessons we learned from dealing with the pandemic from uh marching in black lives matter i think will have to apply to fighting climate change and that's that as i said before we have to work together uh, on this that it's real that it's happening and pretending it doesn't happen um doesn't make it go away and the same folks who are telling us oh you know that it'll just go away covid will just go away Oh, you know, no need to mask. You know, why are you masking? Freedom first. Uh, that's a failed policy. It's ended up getting us all sick and trapped in our houses. And even worse is it waiting for waiting for us with climate change. If we allow those same anti-science people, anti-community people, do your own thing, don't care for your fellow human. If we allow that same philosophy to dominate our thinking um, and um, over climate change. Um, we'll have an even worse disaster on our hands than we faced um, uh, in the pandemic and we're still facing today. So that's one of the underlying themes of the book, that, um, that we do have to harness our collective energy and our learnings from this last year and apply them to, um, to fighting for change and other aspects of our lives and in our world.
0: And, you know, things like COVID and climate change, you know, I feel like a lot of people really do underestimate how many of us actually need to be on the same page for it to work. And, you know, especially with, you know, what was going on this past year with the pandemic, um, the way that people because I know you also mentioned this in the novel, you know, the way that people were saying that, like, Dr. Fauci should be fired, you know, those types of people who were just impeding progress and Um, You know, when it came to uh, the NIH, actually, uh, my mom does work at the NIH. Um, She works in the Institute of Infectious Diseases, which is actually the very same department that is working a lot in terms of like COVID research. So you know a lot of things that she's like overseeing or analyzing, you know, has to do with COVID. And she gets very frustrated when people are not following the rules, when people are trying to protest against masks. And so you know, I you know to see that and you know to see so many people put in so much research and risk their lives working still through this pandemic to make sure that other people are safe. And there are people who are still ignoring the the medical advice, ignoring the CDC. ignoring everything about that it's just it's it's sad to see and I feel like we really need to just figure out a way to come together rather than just ignoring the problems because you know like you said the longer we leave it you know the bigger it gets and then the harder it is it's going to be to solve in the future
2: yeah I I think one of the issues also is listening to the voices of young people about what their concerns are um, because obviously they're inheriting the planet and that's part of the reason why we're in all the messes we're in is because there's so many really older people dominating the conversation. Um, and that's one reason why, you know, I, I wrote the book in the voice of this 16-year-old girl. Um, because, you know, I saw this as a music critic, and i talked about it before, whenever I'd write, you know, things about, you know, younger artists, you know, like Taylor Swift, when she was much younger, um, the kind of vitriol I'd get from, um, from older um, uh, usually, male critics about it was remarkable because they weren't listening to the music; they were listening to the sound sounds in their own heads. And we see that replicated, you know, in the in outside the world of entertainment, with other issues where the voices of younger people and younger women are um, are ignored again and again, um, uh, and their tastes ridiculed. I mean, uh, obviously, BTS has a lot of fans, but you know, it's, it's probably the case that many of those are younger women. And I think that's one of the reasons why the critical establishment heads in for BTS is because you know, they don't take their fan base seriously. Um, believe me, if BTS's primary fan base were um, 50-year-old men, um, uh, they would probably have won the Nobel Prize by now. Uh, but that's not the case. And so um, uh, 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 their, their fan base gets, gets dissed again and again. And so that's the reason I wrote the book. I wanted people to take that kind of a voice seriously. And, um, and inspire readers who, um, who maybe don't get to see these kinds of voices in literature. So most multicultural books, uh, most white books, aren't written by people of color and don't feature protagonists of color. And that's of course bad for young people that want to see themselves reflected in books. But, and this is talked about less and it should be talked about more, is that I think it also hurts um, white people, particularly white men, that don't get to place themselves in their heads of people outside of their particular cultural group. That doesn't allow them to see the world through other people's eyes, and it takes away from a sense of empathy they might otherwise develop. So it's important to read books that go beyond like Lord of the Flies. If you really want to understand your community, or Catcher in the Rye, a great book, but you know, let's have some other books that people have to read as young people that's part of the reason why I wrote this book, because I wanted to make sure that YA fiction um, uh, uh, had people beyond the typical people that they tend to read about and write about in YA fiction. Um, and uh, and uh, again, I, I love books like Catching the Rye, I love Lord of the Flies, but there needs to be more than that to break people out of their bubbles. I think that's part of the, part of the problem we all face as a global community, is that so often, social media, um, economic circumstances, and other things trap us in these bubbles. Um, and, and if you like this, like that. And so you end up just um, reinforcing your own tastes, having the same kinds of friend groups, um, only, the people who only see things through your worldview. And so it's, 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 it's no surprise that when you meet someone outside of that worldview, it's a culture shock for you. You have no idea what's going on there. Um, and it's getting worse and worse, in part because of the way social media keep, um, keeps pushing us into tighter and smaller bubbles of people that are more and more like us. Literature, I think, especially why literature, can help break us out of that. You know, some of the books I loved the most were books that I read when I was a kid, um, uh, or at least a younger person. I think by the time you're, like, my age, all the books you read are books that... Um, aren't necessarily going to change your worldview radically um, because it's pretty much already been formed. So that's why I think it's so important to have books that really might adjust people's worldview, challenge them, bring them into a new kind of understanding of the world or of different people from a younger age, because that's the time when people are really open to the most change.
1: Yeah, you know, representation does matter. And, you know, some people will say, oh, you know, It's not a big deal like they're they're just fictional characters you don't need to see yourself in them but i i it just i don't think people understand how it feels to see yourself represented if you've always been represented so um it is really important for people to have these characters that are like them because in most media you don't see that um you know i really was happy with the character of tova in particular i was not expecting to have a character that represent me i my father is jewish and my mom is puerto rican and so i have like that half and half jewish you know conflicting um culture and i was like tova is literally in my head (laughs) um and so it, it was just you know people don't understand how it feels if you've just like always been if you're a white male, it's always been in media. Like you're never gonna get it, and so I think it is important and representation does matter. And I'm really glad that um, you are emphasizing that.
2: Well, well, thank you for that. Yeah, I, I do think it, it's also important to uh, to not just you know to view the world through a black and white lens where all the characters are black and white, and that's the only Um, kind of cultural experience you explore, uh, that it goes beyond that. I think it's also important to make sure you don't um, mess up or write something that's wrong when you come from a different cultural experience. For example, I have a character in the book who is um, Native American. And so for that, I actually did consult with people who were Native American. Um, uh, I consulted with um, others on the name to make sure it was okay. They read through it to make sure that, um, I, I, and, and gave me some corrections and uh, things I was expressing that wouldn't have been said by a character like that. Because uh, you want to make sure things are authentic, that you're not dissing a certain community, and you've done all of your due diligence to make sure that that character is expressed in a way that makes sense. I mean, uh, I was struck recently by the, the controversy that, that Lin Lin-Man, Manuel Miranda, who I love, got into um uh with in the heights a great musical but it got criticism for not casting um enough darker skinned latinas and latinos in in the in the film and um that kind of thing is solved when you actually have a broader group of people actually take a look at your work of art uh as you're casting as you're making it to sort of give you some guidance so um i know that um Uh, Art is often seen as a solitary thing, and, and artists have to make their own sort of bold choices. But I do think it's a good idea to have some humility and be willing to sort of have people sort of give you advice and take a look at things and say whether things are right or wrong and take their advice. Before I published this book, I actually put it, I made it into a Google Doc, and had various kids in New Rochelle read it over and give me their notes and give me their advice on, is this something you would say? Is this real? Is that not? And um, some of them didn't finish it. They had stuff to do. <laughs> but others gave me some really good advice on how to improve it, um, how to change some of some of the things that were said, um, some of the way things people were thinking about things, to make it more authentic to their own experience. So uh, it, really in that way, you know, the book is about community. It was kind sort of used Google Docs to sort of You know, edited as a community. So that was very helpful um, to the creation of this book.
1: Yeah, I actually had a, a question. You know, going back to, you know, literature being very, you know, white male dominated, and I would even say white female dominated, because honestly, white women aren't. You know they're 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 higher on the pedestal let's be real um but <laughs> <laughs> um in the novel geth had received an email from her teacher in regards to like her writing style um and, you know since academia is predominantly white and therefore the proper language of academia is also going to be centered around white dialects and so I'm curious about um, any difficulties in keeping your voice as a non-white writer throughout either your academic or professional career.
2: Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. Um, It's funny. um, Just this semester, um, there's a Harvard course that's um, teaching one of my books um, around Harvard Square, and there's a a course called the Harvard Novel and. uh, and students um, uh, will have to read my book. It's required for that course. So I was happy to hear that, that finally my, one of my books is required reading for a, for a Harvard course. Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I've never had any issues about having a certain voice, uh, having a voice that um, got um, got curtailed or somehow um, uh, um, abused in the um, uh while I'm trying to sort of get it out there. Um, It's always a fight to make sure your authentic voice is out there. Um, uh, um, And I think that, um, uh, especially in the world of entertainment, sometimes they're they're guardians that actually don't want to see um, people of color succeed. I'll give you an example. Um, Years ago, when I was at Time magazine, I wanted to put Denzel Washington on the cover. For some reason... um, Uh, His agent wouldn't let it happen. Um, His manager at the time wouldn't let it happen. Um, His publicist at the time wouldn't let it happen. All the people around him just would not let me get to him for whatever reason. Even though I talked to him before, they wouldn't let me talk to him to do this big cover story for time. I couldn't understand what the heck was going on. Um, um, So, uh, I went to Drown My Sorrows at a soul food restaurant in Harlem with my wife, and my wife liked going to. And, um, and my wife is um, uh, very good at sort of talking to people and making bonds. And so we get in a conversation with the, the owner of the restaurant, whom she knows. And I'm parting out my troubles to her. I'm saying, you know, I'm trying to get Denzel for the story. He won't talk to me. It's really annoying. And, and I'm just trying to do, you know, do a big feature on him for Time Magazine. And um, she goes, like, oh, Denzel, he orders takeoff from here all the time. I have his fax number. That's how you know this story from a long time ago, because it involves fax wow. numbers. Wow. And so she texts him a letter saying, I got this brother, young brother, and his wife, and, and my, actually, um, we were married at the time? They were married at the time. Um, uh, he wants to know, actually, just dating at the time. Um, uh, it, but my young brother and his girlfriend, they, they, at my sofa restaurant, you know, do you want to talk to this guy? The next morning, I got a call from one of Denzel's reps saying, Denzel wants to meet you in, um, in, at the Toronto Film Festival. And I did the interview, it was for Devil in a Blue Dress, Um, uh, You can Google it. um, And uh, didn't make the cover because I wanted to put on the cover for the movie before that, but it was a big feature. Um, But this showed me um, there was no reason for him not to have done the interview, but he had people around him that I think didn't really want to have this brother do this interview. They didn't want to have this succeed. And so uh, I find that again and again where um, the people around people who aren't working in their best interests and are trying to reduce the kind of voices that are out there trying to promote the culture, trying to push things in a positive way. So he's got to keep on pushing, got to keep on fighting for things. Um, use all the contacts you can. I mean, uh, when I do teach classes, I often cite that story as an example of it's good to have a lot of contacts, not just high highfalutin contacts who are like agents, CAA, but people who work in restaurants and people who are janitors and people who are maids and people who are computer programmers, because you never know. One, it's just interesting, because they tell you funny, cool stories. But two, someday you might want to tap their expertise to land a big story. And because my wife was so good at that, it ended up getting me a a good interview with Denzel that was a big feature in Time magazine.
1: Wow. That is incredible. You know, that is... Yeah, I'm so shocked that that almost didn't happen. And it, it kind of... I mean, that was probably, like, what, years and years and years ago, but... I feel like nothing I feel like nothing has really changed though, with what we see with mm. Meg Lee Stallion and like how her label didn't even want the Butter remix to come out they thought oh this is not going to be beneficial for your career like they she's had so many issues with her label trying to hold her down and it's just crazy it feels like there's just so m- much effort to stop people from succeeding
2: Yeah I would want to give Megan the Stallion career advice I'm sure she's working it out but when your label is trying to stop you from releasing a, a, a song with BTS, you need to get off that label ASAP. Period. <laughs> Period. <laughs> something, something is There's some kind of disconnect there. Because that makes no... I can't imagine a world where that makes any kind of a sense. Because the, the song was quite good, and, um, and I'm sure it's going to be a huge hit. People are really buzzing about it. And why they wanted to stop it from happening? What in the world was going on there? And what could have been the explanation other than someone does not have your best interest at heart and this is crazy
1: yeah it's crazy it just it doesn't make any sense especially because they were like oh this won't be successful so you probably shouldn't release it but BTS if you do want to release it we want $100,000 and it's like <laughs> if it's not worth it then why do you want so much money for it like the math is not mathing
2: and also like that's chump change in terms of the kind of um, uh, positive feeling and the kind of growth in um, in um, who she's going to reach by being aligned with BTS. I mean, they're global. They've got this active fan base around the world. They're, they're big in markets that I'm sure she wants to reach. $100,000 is nothing in the world of Megan the Stallion land. If you're holding out for, for that kind of chump change, you know you're not seeing the big picture. No, you know, no. you know, doing 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 a song with um with BTS is worth much more than a hundred thousand dollars or a million dollars even. It's just it's crazy to be that focused in on like little bits of currency like that. And the other gotcha. thing is, you know, every 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 they're so smart about the collaborations they do. I've liked every collaboration they've done. I think it has been terrific. Whether it's been and, and been smart, whether it's been little Nas X. Or whether it's you know the juice world collaboration we talked about before or halsey um often the collaborations they do are their best songs i mean i like halsey but i think that her song with bts is her best song um you know that, that she has nothing better than that i mean am i wrong or did, did she have a song better than that
1: i don't know i think she's about to release a new album we'll have to see but like her vocals I mean um, I know the music video is a little bit different from like the official track she's more prominent on like the actual single but like having Halsey actually sing in Korean with BTS I think was just extremely special and um, and the feeling I'm pretty sure BTS got from that the feeling of seeing you know Halsey fans watch her sing in Korean, sing on stage with BTS. Like, I, I feel like that is almost priceless.
2: Yeah, and I think it's another way in which BTS is moving culture forward. It's funny, um, it also tells you, and again, that's another way I'm sort of inspired by BTS as a writer. Um, when you make the world come to you, um, I, I'm thinking of what's happened in Korean pop culture over the last couple of years, where you see the success um, uh, of, of, of filmmakers, of writers, of BTS, um, doing things in their own language and not saying, oh, we have to translate this for you to get it. Um, uh, no, um, uh, they can do it in their own language and we'll come to you and, 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 and still understand and still get the emotions behind it. Um, and again, that's powerful. It, 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 it does what I think is good in this world Breaking people outside of their own bubbles, seeing things through the language and eyes of others, and if we have more of that, I think the world will be in a better place.
0: Definitely, and I think that that's something that I find like incredibly unique to BTS. If we're looking at like mainstream like acts um, on a global scale, because you know in America, obviously there are times where, for example, Spanish tracks you know get listened to a lot, um, but you know even though there are a lot of listeners to those tracks the way that people try and meet bts halfway for their own songs in korean the way that they go out of their way to research the references that they make whether they're literary you know psychological cultural references the way that there are so many people who are now inspired to learn korean because of bts you know you don't really see that for a lot of other artists who um, don't speak english and i feel like the way that bts has able has been able to just bring so many people together, like, bring them, like, bring people to them, as you said, like, I feel like that type of thing is something that is just unprecedented, you know, in this time. And I really do think that if more artists, you know, are able to connect that way with other people, their fans, and, you know, more people are willing to be open-minded and just learn more about other people, I think that would be just amazing.
2: And that's why it's so instructive not to take, um, no for an answer, when people sort of tell you, you have to do it this way to reach a larger audience. And I, I always think back to that, that movie, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. which is a Mandarin language movie that I loved. It came out around, around the year 2000, 1999. And people thought, this can't be a hit. It's in Mandarin. Who's going to go see this? It's an old Asian cast. It made over $100 million and got nominated for a bunch of, um, a bunch of um, Academy Awards. You know, Parasite, um, Korean language film. People thought it was just going to play art houses. Instead, it was a huge, um, a, a huge hit around the world um, in Korean. Um, and um, uh, those kinds of things send the signal that, um, yes, you can speak in your, your own voice, literally your own voice, and still get heard. And don't let the world, don't let critics, don't let naysayers say, oh, you have to speak in our voice, you have to speak in the master's voice. You have to speak in some other voice in order for to be in order to be heard. No, you don't. Um, speak in your own voice, uh, make your own points, and and that's how you sort of push world culture forward. And that's clearly what BTS does with almost all their songs by speaking in Korean, only having English occasionally, um, and they're able to communicate their own kind of ideas. Some of which you know don't have direct English language translations, and so it wouldn't make any sense for them to try to just force it into English in order to be heard. You know, I remember um, back in the day, um, again, I'm dating myself, I was doing an interview with um, Shakira for her first English language album, and, and I don't know if you ever listened to Shakira in, in Spanish, but her Spanish work is really like poetry, it's about more political and social concerns. Um, and her English stuff is, is much more pop. It's getting more complex, but it's much more pop. And, um, uh, but in order to break through this market, you know, she did make that shift. Um, but you know, she's, she's now able to do it in, in both languages. But um, uh, it, it's, making that transition sometimes re- requires compromise if you want to try to speak in English instead of you know, whatever, whatever your own originating language is.
0: Right, and, you know, there's definitely been that same type of thing with BTS, you know, when they made the ship with Dynamite Butter, Permission to Dance, you know, when it came to their English lyrics, you know, there was a lot of debate amongst, you know, people whether or not that was the right move given the fact that, you know, only RM is fluent in English and, you know, the other ones, like, aren't, you know, as fluent as, like, RM, so it's gonna be difficult for them, it's not even just singing English, but, like, for the lyricism to be at the same level of complexity as their Korean works. But then at the same time, when you think about the purpose of the English singles, especially, you know, songs like Permish to Dance, I feel like a lot of people like, kind of missed the point, it wasn't necessarily like, oh, we're making these English singles so we can like, get, you know, clout, we can get famous, because BTS were already famous before they even made the English single, so that argument makes no sense first of all. <laughs> um, but, you know, just the fact that they wanted to be able to try and reach more people, try and comfort others during this pandemic, and, you know, they thought that this was the right move, and I definitely think that the, you know, the songs served their purpose. Um, And, you know, when it comes to Shakira, you know, whether it's her Spanish music or her English music, I feel like um, it's kind of counterproductive to be gatekeeping people into, like, what decisions they want to make, how they want to, you know, portray emotions within their music. Sometimes there are only things that you can do in a specific language. Sometimes it doesn't work as well in other languages, and you can definitely see that when it comes to what BTS do with their music. Some things just work in specific languages.
2: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, th- I think that you know, each language does have certain things encoded in it that don't always directly tra- translate, or it takes a translator who has almost the same skill as a writer in order to get that across. And you know, I read a lot of poetry, you know, like you know Pablo Neruda and Rilke, and um, anyone who does read a lot of poetry that's originally written in other languages can see that translation matters. You read it in um, when you sometimes you read in the uh, various English language versions, and, re- and you see some that are really good, some that are really bad, and it takes a good translator to sort of get it right. I was struck recently um, that um, I, I think probably you and others have read like the um, the, uh, the Odyssey when you were um, in, in high school or college, and there are various translations, some that are good, some that are bad. A couple years ago, the first translation came out. Of the Odyssey that was ever done by um, a, a female translator, and um, remember the first line of the um, of the Odyssey is supposed to be very famous um, and, um, uh, and, uh, and 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 much quoted and done in different kinds of ways I remember when the first woman ever to translate it uh, published her book Emily Wilson um, she translated the line as um, it, 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 often people translate it as um you know, sing of me, O oh muse of a man of twists and turns, something like that. And it's sort of archaic tech language. And she translated of um, uh, Tell Me About a Complicated Man. It was just so elegant and simple. I mean, it took a great translator, a translator who was sort of outside of the typical boys' club, to sort of cut through all the garbage and have that first line in a way that was very direct and very pure. Um, but that's what translation is a hard, hard job. And uh, and um, uh, I think uh, BTS has done a great job of it, but I I'd also love to continue to hear this stuff in Korean um, because I don't know about you, but I always watch movies um, with subtitles. I don't do the dub versions. Yeah, me Amen.
1: too. Yep, I watch everything in with this subtitles. house. We do not support the dub version. I'm sorry.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, when I'm watching a Miyazaki film, you know, I'm gonna watch it with. Uh, I like watching it with the um, actual in, 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 in Japanese. And reading the subtitles, even though they've gotten they've gotten some great actors to do to dub them, but I prefer it in Japanese when possible.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, just to I'm... hear it in the original in
0: the original voice it was intended for it to be, and I just really enjoy seeing that. With you know, that's why I always you know look for subtitles. I don't really look for dubbed versions of anything. I mean, even back when, you know, for example, like something like Pokemon, you know, a lot of people for some reason do not know that it's a Japanese anime um, because, you know, over here it's just always been dubbed. So people just kind of treat it as like a regular old cartoon. Um, But, you know, when, you know, I got older and I realized like, oh, you know, it was originally in Japanese, I feel like making that switch was very important to just appreciate things in different languages and i feel like that really opened my mind up to like the complexities of other languages how it works how people's talk like how people's tone of voice differs and like how there are just some things that you can say in a specific language that you just can't say in others it just doesn't translate well and definitely like with BTS you can see that and especially with like the way that armies translate because there are a lot of like big army accounts who are like solely focused on translating BTS's music. Some of them even have entire websites where they've trans like they've translated their entire discography, added annotations for their cultural references, their wordplay, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, just being able to dive into that, especially like with their Korean work, is just so fascinating to me and Like, you know, just like you, I'm definitely looking forward to, like, their next Korean album to see, like, what kind of things that we're going to be able to analyze next.
1: They've been too quiet on Twitter. It's coming.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And and I feel the act of listening to something in another language and trying to bridge that understanding gap, that builds character. I think that that builds up your brain. And I think that um, that makes you a more empathetic, understanding person. Sometimes only a little bit, maybe sometimes more. Um, but I think it broadens you out when you, act, you try to make that leap because so much of our lives is uh, usually spent for many of us in one language um, without trying to sort of understand the person next to us um, but um, being able to try to bridge that, la- that language gap and listen to music, and, music in other languages I think it puts you that much closer to, try to trying to figure out what's going on in their heads and figuring out their concerns and trying to see the world through their eyes and broadening out your life in the process. So, um, you know, I, again, just another one of the many reasons to admire BTS's success.
0: Right, definitely. And, you know, just to be able to put yourself in the mindset, I think, is super important. I know, you know, because, like, both Eli and I, we come from, you know, uh, backgrounds where, you know, both of our, our parents are, you know, not originally from America. You know, Delilah, she has her mom, who's from Puerto Rico, you know, my parents, I'm, like, fully Nigerian, so my parents moved here from Nigeria, and then I was born here. So to be able to connect with different cultures and to be able to understand things through their eyes, I think it's just something so incredible. And to see it being done on such a large scale with BTS, I think it's just great. And I think it's one of the reasons why our fandom is so interconnected, because... Of such this heavy importance on understanding them and like understanding their lyrics um that's why because like what something i've definitely heard is that like the korean side of you know k-pop fandoms and the international side of k-pop fandoms are often not as connected in like for other types of groups and for other types of fandoms and that our fandom is a rare case um and because of that connection and like you know communicating with the korean side you know them teaching us different phrases in Korean, them trying to help us understand their lyrics more. I feel like that has really just brought us together as a community, and I think it's also one of the like, reasons why we can mobilize the way we do.
2: Yeah, you know, and I can see that. You know, I, I myself was born in Kingston, Jamaica. Um, I left there when I was very young, so I don't have an accent. Uh, wish I could fake it, but I, I can't, and raised in <laughs> upstate New York. Um, but I think sometimes when you come from another country, it does give you kind of an outsider's perspective. You're able to sort of see things through new eyes because you're both sort of inside it and you're outside of it a little bit. Because you're thinking the whole time, like, yes, I'm an American, but I'm also Jamaican, and um, I don't necessarily sort of have to accept this at face value. I can sort of, you know, critique it from the from the outside, and that's kind of part of the perspective that I brought to this book. I mean, the and in zero clock, the, the lead character she is Jamaican American. You now her her dad is 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 Jamaican, and um, and so there is a bit of otherness to her as she sort of comments on her friends and her community and America and some of the things that she goes through. I mean, she doesn't always sort of um, you know, go on and on about her Jamaicanness. It's kind of just sort of a uh, a hidden thread, and to, to, to some extent through some of the book in part because of her feelings about her father and, and things that she's lost but it definitely does play a part in her outsider status and it's, it's part of the reason why I think she connects to, to BTS because they like her are outsiders uh, to, um, to America that they're coming in with a different language a different culture and making these connections and she too has that otherness in her background and so um, she connects to them in that way as well.
1: Yeah, I'm curious about um, when, you know, we first started, you said that zero o'clock, it was at times very difficult to write. And so I'm curious, like, which parts exactly were the most difficult for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, uh, some of the most difficult parts were, um, uh, uh, were um, at, at the end, when, I, um, when the character really sort of has to wrap up a bit about what her journey means to her um, what she's gone through um, and where she'll take it um, because on one level I wanted to make sure it was uh, it, it did come from her voice there was a kind of understanding you would have at that age and not necessarily the understanding you might have as like a 50 year old dude writing about a 16 year old girl um, so that was sort of um, a delicate kind of situation. Um, you know, there are a lot of emotional parts that were, um, that were wrapped up in, you know, um, some things that I've gone through, know, um, I think we've all um, had people that we've, we've lost or lost touch with or had difficulties during this pandemic, and um, some of those things are, are, are wrapped up in some of the episodes towards the end of the book where... Some characters get sick. Um, uh, um, uh, at, at, in New Rochelle High School, which is our local high school that my son went to and my daughter goes to, go, goes to um, we did have some incidents of violence a couple of years ago where, um, where people were hurt and killed. And, um, and some of the emotions and confusion from that um, made its way into the, into the book. Um, every emotion in this book um, is fictitious, but all of it 's real all of it 's rooted in stuff that you know I key went through or a relative went through or a friend went through because I wanted to make sure it was something that was authentic and people could identify with and maybe find some understanding or peace with it um, when they read it so um, so that 's always difficult to sort of get out there because you never want to be sappy um, but you do want to be authentic and you want to be real and you do want to shed some light on things that people are going through.
0: Right. And touching upon authenticity, something I also noticed with the end of the book is that not everything is like wrapped up neatly in a little boat. There's still some things that end up being ambiguous because, you know, something about life is that, you know, you don't have, you know, movie s arcs where you have, you know, introduction to something, there's a problem, you solve it happily ever after, you know, there are some things in life that don't end up being solved right away. There are some things that just don't end as nicely as you'd hoped it would. And I feel like, you know, the fact that there were still things at the end where you're wondering, oh, what might happen to them? I feel like that adds to the authenticity, the fact that not everything is, like, very, like, tightly concluded.
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks for pointing that out. You know, um, uh, one thing I wanted to break out of is um, uh, the kind of verse-chorus-verse structure of a lot of books, because um, you know, uh, books that are tightly plotted to me don't feel authentic. They feel like you know you're 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 um, you're, you're being led along by the author, and real life isn't plotted like that. Um, and so it, it doesn't feel real to me, and, and it doesn't feel real to a lot of readers. And yet, you don't want to just sort of throw out experiences without making it mean something, without leading to what people towards some sort of conclusion or understanding uh, and so uh, there's a sweet spot in there somewhere that I tried to hit where um, yes, she's having a series of experiences and challenges and yet by the end there is some sort of meaning to it some sort of understanding to it though some things are still um, left unresolved or things that the reader themselves will have to take information from the book from and decide on themselves how they want to feel. Um, and I don't think that today's readers want to be sort of led to a specific conclusion. I think they do want to have some, uh, some meaning in the book. They, they want to mean something, but they also want to f- figure out some of those challenges for themselves. I didn't know many people who have wrapped up every issue in their life at age 16, and so <laughs> it would make right. sense for this, this character to have done that. But I do think people want to, um, who've just, and we've all gone through this terrible pandemic. We all went through the summer of of protests, um, some of which we talked about have continuing. The pandemic is continuing. Other issues we're we're facing, like climate change, are still in front of us. And so um, with this book, I just wanted to sort of, uh, you know, one, you know, uh, capture that moment, and two, have a character that really, um, uh, along with the reader, grapples with some of these ideas and comes away with maybe the beginnings of meaning that we can all use to sort of make that experience um, uh, more livable and something that, that, that makes sense in our lives that we can use to sort of cope with the rest of our lives as well.
0: Yeah, and I think that definitely just plays into you know, the title itself, Zero O'Clock, and you know, the you know, song it's based on, the fact that not everything is going to be resolved simply because, you know, oh, it's a new day. You know, I know they mentioned that in the lyrics of Zero O'Clock, where they're like, oh, you know, is everything going to change? It may not, but at least today is over, and you can start differently. And you know, I feel like that just definitely coincides with like the conclusion of this book, where everything may not be resolved, but you can still take the initiative, you know, to, you know, have a better future for yourself. And I think that that was really interesting for me.
2: Yeah, and a lot of the BTS songs, I said before, are wrapped up in this book. I and mean, music means a lot to me. I've been a music critic. You know, my emotions get wrapped up in music. And a lot, of, a lot of times when I think back to times in my life, I think of. Songs that were associated with that specific period or artists that I've interviewed. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I think we talked before about how, um, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, um, that it, there might be some critics who think that, you know, fiction can't have as much meaning as real people in your life. Well, to me, musical experiences are as real to me as any experience I've ever had in my life. I think many BTS fans feel the same about BTS, I mean, I think back on some of the experiences I've had. I remember um, years ago, I, I interviewed Amy Winehouse, who's one of my favorite artists. And I wanted to bring her over to... Um, I, I had this performance series at the Wall Street Journal. I wanted to have her perform there, but you know, she, she died before it happened. And, um, and there were other reasons why she couldn't come because some drug convictions or something or other. Any case, it was a mess. never happened. I remember I was really bummed when I finally realized I wasn't going to bring her over here to, to, to do this concert at the Wall Street Journal. And I remember this um, other publicist knew I was bummed and said, like, I got this other artist you might like. You can bring her to the Wall Street Journal and she can give a mini concert. I'm like, that's going to be great. We had this little tiny break room, 50 seats. She was a newer artist. And um, I remember before she began to sing, I was really, really bummed. And this, this other artist came to rehearse, and it was Adele. Um, and you can see it on YouTube because we, we put the video out. I remember the minute she opened her mouth and like I, I, and I, I didn't forget Amy Winehouse I still loved her but I, I just I, I realized and you know, I just, just I realized that you know, there's always great music out there and um, it can always you know sort of change your mood and, and take you out of whatever experience you're having and change your life sometimes and I, I remember she, she sang Roland Deep" on that concert and she sang um, uh, um, uh, uh, um, Someone Like You um, and it was, it was, it was just um, just two incredible songs. And, um, and, and the, the picture of her singing, because I remember I was there for a rehearsal, just me and Adele and a couple of technicians in this small room. And hearing her sing is it's such a powerful experience in my life. It feels like it's, it happened like two seconds ago. And that's what music can do. You, it can just root you in a time and a place and emotion and sort of make it unforgettable. And i'm sure we'll all have those moments again when b t s has to tour, but this is one that sort of um comes back to me again and again when I think back to the the, the power of music to sort of uh root us in specific experiences I mean, another one that comes out to me is um i remember um uh um uh going to see Nirvana unplugged I don't know if you've ever seen that um that, that concert footage and um and uh just being there in that room uh when he's when he's saying um when, when Kurt Cobain sang um, uh, uh, um, the Lead Belly uh, song um, In the Pines, and hits that sort of last so screaming note. It was just incredible to be that close and be in that room, and um, it's as real to me as, as anything hearing that note. Um, so, uh, you know, music has that power, and I tried to sort of put it in that book with, you know, one of the most powerful artists I could think of today, which is BTS, because I think that, that those songs and the list I, the, I've read some of the list of the songs that we're playing in the pandemic, I think that will forever root us. When we think back to 2020, we'll think of some of those songs. And that'll take us back to some good times and some bad times. But I think it'll also you know, give us some meaning and some comfort when we play those songs again and again and think of 2021, 20, 2020 and 2021, and listen to those songs.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I feel like we even see that. Um with some BTS songs like Spring Day. It came out in 2017 and yet people still, it's still on the Korean charts. People still love it. People look back at that and you know, it's a mixed feelings. You feel like kind of somber and sad, but you also feel comforted at the same time. And I can totally see ourselves, um, you know, five, ten years, you know, thinking back on dynamite and butter and remembering them as like uplifting songs but also being like dang like all the stuff that was happening when those songs came out like all of that is intertwined with the music like i feel like music songs don't exist in a vacuum they're influenced by what's happening around them when those songs come out and so like i think it's really great that you brought that up
0: Right. Like, definitely when it comes to music, um, I know for, you know, not even just BTS, but like so many artists I listen to, you know, I think of a song and, you know, it immediately takes me back to like, you know, specific moments in my life. You know, I can think of the first time I ever listened to it, the emotions that I felt. Um, And emotions are a very powerful thing, um, especially in music. Um, You know, so many people can just resonate with the feeling of different songs, the lyrics, the instrumentals and what it means to them. And the fact that it you know music can be interpreted in so many different ways I think is just great. And you know to see in the book as well, like so many people just communicate via playlists, I feel like that's just something, you know, that's really adds to the charm of the novel.
2: Yeah, and I think the other important thing again, another reason why I think BTS is such a great group is that um you know a lot of times you meet artists and you talk to them and you're disappointed in um, what they have to say about their own music or you're disappointed with some of the, the life choices that they make and there's a big debate about whether or not you can um, you can still love music by an artist you no longer respect like you know I love Kanye West's music. I've interviewed Kanye West but his his conduct during the end of the Trump administration was that was, was inexcusable and awful, and I I can stop listening to him. And it's a big ask because it was on a lot of my playlists, but I can't listen to the guy. You know, I'm just done with him. Um, If he's going to, you know, support what he's going to support, I I can just move on from his music. I'm not going to listen to, um, you know, R. Kelly. You know, why? He's not good enough for me to want to listen to after what the stuff he's accused of doing. I don't need to listen to that music anymore. I don't listen, listen to Chris Brown. You know, the minute the whole allegations of, 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 of beating Rihanna came up, I don't need to listen to a guy like that. Done. I don't, listen to, I don't need to listen to him with, with whoever he collaborates with. Um, RM and the various members of, of, of BTS, in every interview I've seen with them, uh, they've been true to their values. They said smart, sophisticated stuff about what they're about. And they make you happier to listen to the music. Rather than, like, oh, that's not, oh, I guess I'll just do it anyways. No, they really present themselves in such a great way to make you appreciate the music all the more. I mean, the, the, last, the last person I really, I remember I felt the same way about Taylor Swift. I remember the first time I interviewed her in Nashville for the Wall Street Journal. This is also online. You know, it wasn't the first time, but the first time I really got to sort of spend time with her face to face. I was just struck by how smart she was, how um, intentional she was about what she was doing about how strong-willed she was. I mean, she answered... I remember I tried to ask her... This was after the whole Kanye West incident with her. I remember I tried to ask her about that like five different ways, and each time she found a new way to not answer the question. And then, in the end, I kind of respected that, that she was so strong-willed. She had her game plan. She was going to stick with it. Um, and um, it made me admire her all the more. And recently, you know, and the, the way she connected herself during the pandemic and during the Trump administration maybe like her all the more. She stood, she came out and spoke for her beliefs. She wasn't someone who sort of hid behind publicity. Um, it made you respect her all the more. So there's some artists like that, that, um, that just um, grow into the role, um, uh, show the sophistication and intelligence and grace time and time again when they're doing interviews. And the others, we hear them talk and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know if I can do this anymore. <laughs> Good music, but uh, I, I'm out. You know, Kanye West is one of those that I'm out love him I'm sure I hope Don does a success for him but unless he apologizes for a lot of stuff he said before you know um, done and, but BTS was just the opposite where I feel like they just keep saying smarter and smarter and munching stuff and growing in sophistication and um, representing themselves and their country and their and their their fans in a really positive um, positive way
1: yeah, I think another yeah, thing yeah. about like BTS and Army that uh, people really appreciate is you know usually uh, you find out that a lot of artists, especially male artists and male bands, if they have a large female fan base, they they kind of like insult their own fan base, which is very counterproductive. Like that's your source of income. What are you doing? But like BTS seems to actually not care about their fandom demographics. They are constantly talking about how much you know they appreciate us supporting them and that they are always defending us and they're always saying um you know you're, you're they basically say that like all the criticisms against us are called they call people out you're, you're being biased toward them um, because we're a k-pop group because we're a boy band and you know I think it's really rare to see an artist um, really speak about their fans and respect their fans in a way like that and so I think that's another thing that helps really build the community and build the fandom
2: yeah well the K-pop industry is interesting in that um, obviously the, the media approach is covering it in South Korea in a different way than the US um, you know bands don't uh, male bands for the most part don't openly date people um, and so it's hard to know what's going on in the lives. and you know, who really cares um, anyways um, so I, I think all that may or may not help the bands in that industry to sort of project um, a more clean cut image and to um, not offend their fan bases in certain ways so uh, th- that may, may be a positive thing and we've, we have seen some recent incidents, not with BTS, of course, but with other bands or other acts that have gotten into some trouble and things have come out that have been negative about them. Um, um, I, I tend to be very cynical about um, about and skeptical about bands because you know who knows, and, and I've been disappointed before in, in, in groups. But you know, uh, I, I have been very happy with the way you know BTS conducted themselves you know, right the way they talk to fans, the way they. They, um, uh, they, they stick up for fans and the way the fans are stuck with them and um, I'm also very impressed by the way in which um, their fan base has conducted themselves and, and the things that they've fought for and spoken up for and, and, um, and uh, the organization they've shown um, again I've been covering music for a long time and, um, and I've seen other strong fan bases but, but none like this this is something extraordinary and new um, in the in 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 the world of music, they have a fan base that that, that that's organized, that that's committed, um, and that just that devoted to um, to um, a, a certain group or grouper or, 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 or musician.
0: Yeah, I think in the case of BTS, especially when you put it into the context of them promoting within the American market. You know, their company, Big Hit, um, it did not start off as, like, some huge enterprise. It was very small, very obscure, financially struggling. So, Mm -hmm. you know, since the beginning, they've basically had to claw their way to the top, and fans have had to really put in the work to make sure that they got the recognition that they deserved. So I feel like since the beginning, both BTS and the fan base armies have just always had the sense of duty when it comes to music to make sure that it gets the appreciation that it deserves that it gets the success that it deserves and that carried on into how we you know organize when it comes to bts's music today i mean just because they're the biggest group in the world you know armies have never been complacent still We're organizing streaming parties still. We're going out of our way to, you know, help promote them. We're going out of our way to analyze their lyrics. There's not been any change in how we've treated their music since the beginning, back when they were basically nobodies up until now that they're the biggest group in the world. And I think that that appreciation for music and that sense of duty and that determination is really what has, you know, propelled them up there and also have, like, it's also what created this mutual respect between fan and artist. I feel like because... There are some groups especially like in america where they're already like they debut and they're already privileged because they come from like some huge company you know fans don't have to try as hard you know they don't have to worry about is their song going to get played on the radio they don't have to worry about are they even going to be nominated for this particular award but that's things that we always have to worry about so that's why we're never ever you know slacking off when it comes to supporting them which i feel like just ends up Increasing and just improving the dynamic between fan and artist, which is just really something that I haven't seen with other artists and other fans of this generation.
2: Well, I think you've mentioned something very important, and it's the importance of coming from a small label. Small labels actually are the engine of innovation throughout pop music history. I mean, I mentioned before I wrote a book about Bob Marley called Before the Legend, The Rise of Bob Marley, and um, early on, he did some recording with Studio One, which would help give birth to um, reggae around the world. A small Jamaican based label. Um, he ended up signing with Island Records and Chris Blackwell, another smaller label. And it's these small labels that are willing to take a chance and that are willing to be fighters for innovation for something, something new. Uh, and, it's, and it's funny how analogous Bob Marley's early situation was to BTS, where he even had a lyric in one of his songs um, where he goes, he sort of took aim at the larger record companies, and he said, if you are the big tree, make it sound like both the word tree and, tr- and three, then we are the small axe, uh, ready to cut you down. Uh, and I feel it's the same kind of attitude that um, BTS and Big Hit had early on. I mean, yes, there were these bigger labels out there, but there were the small axe willing to cut them down to, and, and, and set on their own path. And I think because they had that alternate attitude, that they were the small guy and the, um, the underdog, um, that helped them succeed. And see that again and again in music history, with like, you know, um, uh, you know, Death Row Records, small label that ends up being big, Sub Pop, which gave birth to Nirvana, a lot of other big bands, um, time and time again, it's these smaller labels that help launch musical revolutions around the world. And BTS is part of that tradition smaller label not one of the big established guns and now they're the, they're the big fish now now they're they're um they're, they're 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 dominant around the world
0: right and you know i definitely hope that like in the future we can see just more progress in terms of just innovation musically and especially in literature as well with your book i hope that it inspires like other people to go and you know put a lot more diversity and a lot more thought into the young adult literature that you know the youth are going to have to read, um, which would probably bring us to, like, I guess, uh, kind of like a close-off question of, like, what do you think, uh, what would be, like, the biggest takeaway you want young or adult readers to take away from your book?
2: Now, one, uh, the book is for everyone. You know, I, I want to write a book that's, you know, like, 1984 is a book that I guess is for adults, but young people read all the time, and it changes the worldview, and it's a great book, um, and I want them, if if they're you know, feeling unsettled by the pandemic, if they're um, feeling unsettled by the world at large, um, and you're any age, to read the book and maybe find some comfort in it and find some understanding, or just some fun. I mean, in the end, it's a fun book, I think. It's about some fun things, and someone who just loves music and ultimately loves life and loves her friends and is trying to get along in life uh, and finds her voice. To help others also um, um, uh, uh, find their way, I was just inspirational in that way. So um, I think if you if you want to read a good book, I hope you check out Zero Clock. If you love BTS, I hope you love you check out um, check out Zero Clock. Um, if you're just tired of the reading list that your teacher is forcing on you, and you want to read a different character, I hope you check out you know this book. So um, that's really the takeaway. It's a fun book. There's some deep messages in it, I think, if you want to see. There's some messages that, like, the music you may love, if you want to check that out, too. Um, And it's written from a place of love that this is just, these are things, concerns that were on my mind, the mind of my kids and people that I know, and I wanted to sort of write about them in this book.
0: I mean, that's great. Like, that's just, thank you so much for, you know, all the time I know, like, you know we usually try and like get these like to be as concise as possible but obviously the conversation was just amazing today so for our listeners it's two hours yes we know but listen to the whole thing this has just been an incredible conversation um and we really appreciate you coming on here in fact one thing i actually was curious about is how did you even find about find out about us in the first place like we're not like some huge like channel or anything so i'm surprised you even reached out to us and you know in the beginning
2: yeah you know um I'm on Twitter a lot, and I listen to a lot of different podcasts. Um, you because know, I'm I an executive editor at Audible, which is um, you know an audio company. So i i um, I work on my own podcast I have a podcast out with Blake Griffin. Um, I, I, um it's just something something that I do. Um, and uh, you know, I appreciate people. Uh, I appreciate the podcasting form, and I appreciate BTS. And this sort of combines both of those things. I think that um, you know thing I love about podcasts is um, it allows you to explore issues at length. I mean, so often when I watch mainstream media or watch TV, some guest comes on, they've got two seconds to talk. I mean, the last time that BTS was on one of the late-night shows, they just did some sort of game, gaming segment and didn't even get to really talk. Um, and uh, podcasts give you something different. You're allowed to sort of discuss things at length, uh, in-depth. Some of it's just ephemeral. Some of it's deep, uh, and I think the world needs more of that. I think there's so many issues out there, you know, like climate change. coming back there again; that we need to talk about at length, and not just in sound bites. So, uh, you're doing good work talking about things you love about love at length, because we need more of that. I think it makes us all better, smarter people.
1: That really, so that really that. means a lot, especially because that's kind of the whole reason why we wanted to do a podcast. We're like the things we want to say can't be done in, like, 180 characters on Twitter. Like, there's so much more nuance that is going on, um, with BTS and the music industry, and so we wanted to have this podcast to discuss things at length, like you said, so we're really thankful that, um, you reached out to us, and we're also so thankful that we got to talk to you and read your book. It really is Um, an amazing young adult novel. Um, uh, Do you know um, if it's going to be available in stores like Barnes & Noble?
2: Yeah, it'll be anywhere good books are sold. It'll be there. Um, It's, of course, going to be on Amazon.com. You can pre-order now. And, you know, the key thing is if you want to write a book or do a podcast, I think people often worry about the size of their audience. I always think whether you have one person listening to you or a million, it doesn't matter. As long as you're making that one connection, that's the important thing. And not to drop too many stories, but I remember uh, not that many years ago, when I was doing that my W Cafe thing, and we we invited um, uh, um, we invited uh, um, uh, Ed Sheeran to come. This is before he was really big, mm-hmm. and he shows up, and we had 20 people for this for this event. So it was, it was him with his guitar performing for 20 people, and he did it, and he was. He, he, he stopped and talked because the, the people in the audience were just my students at Iona College <laughs> and he stopped and talked to everybody and gave them his wisdom and he was, he was so friendly and nice and like a week later he was a global, global superstar we could have never gotten him but the fact that he was willing to sort of build up his audience 20 people at a time and give a three person concert for like 20 people um, and no one should be above talking to one person or one million um, maybe to lead someplace maybe it doesn't, but you do it because you love to communicate, because you love what you're talking about, and uh, see where it leads you. So, um, uh, so it was great to be on this podcast, and uh, I wish you guys the best.
1: Yeah, thank you, and we wish you the best, too, with um, whatever your next novel will be. I'm also really interested, I'm probably going to pick up Around Harvard Square and Game World, because I read the descriptions online, and they seemed really interesting to read about, so um, good luck, uh, we hope the book i I believe the book is going to be extremely well received um so just good luck to you um it's going to be out september 7th um which Mm -hmm. is also when this will come out so um when you guys hear this it'll already be out uh so please um if you can go to your local bookstore find it buy it because it's it's worth to have a physical hard copy of
2: Well, thanks a lot, and have a great day.
1: Yep, you too. Thank Thank you so much. (laughs)